as we have Benson come up for our final discussion of the day, I just want to thank you all for your patience, for your resilience, hanging in there and, and, and enjoying the day. I know it's, it's a little bit long, but the sun is still out, so I feel like we're right on time. Um, I'm excited to have Benson come up. I have to be honest, I, I, I didn't really know too much about him until we had our conversation uh, a couple weeks back, and, and I just found his depth of experience incredibly fascinating. He's an author, uh, he's a former filmmaker, uh, and he's the CEO of Teleflex. So please welcome to the stage Benson Smith. Sir? Thank you. Seat, Thank you. I'd mentioned one of those jobs pays a lot better than the other two. <laughs> well, which one's more fun? <laughs> the, the CEO role. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I really enjoyed about getting to know you was uh, I found out that you used to be a door-to-door -door salesman uh, for a company that sold discount <clears throat> coupon books, Club America. Do you remember your first sale and do you remember the first time someone slammed a door in your face? So the answer to those questions are yes. I, uh, I had a similar experience as to our last speaker, except instead of going to St. Olaf, I went to Grinnell. And instead of learning Russian, I took history, and, and even more useless uh, <laughs> uh, degree. Uh, but so coming out of school with a history major, you found out very quickly there were no history departments in companies. <laughs> they uh, failed to realize that if they didn't understand history, they were just going to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. <clears throat> but they did promise, should they ever start a history department, they would call me. Uh, so after waiting, um, I finally got a job as a door-to-door -door salesperson because they were the only persons willing to hire me. And um, the interesting thing is, as we discover things about ourselves, I would have never pictured myself as a door-to-door -door salesperson. I went to an intense three-day training program. <laughs> and the next thing you know, you're knocking on, on, uh, on doors. And do I remember the first uh, door that was slammed in my face? I do, because it was the first door that someone opened up. <clears throat> and uh, realized that I was probably going to have to put up with quite a few of those before I would actually have a chance to get in and, and uh, uh, talk to someone. And I do remember the first sale, sale I made. I was unable to answer all their questions satisfactorily, so I got them to drive down to the office with me and <laughs> oh, no. talk to my manager. And he said, this isn't exactly how we did it in training, but <laughs> you may have some potential for this. Wow, you must have been pretty good if you got them out of the house into your car and drove down to the office. <laughs> It's amazing how bored some people are. <laughs> you told me how you got past the, uh, the front door. Maybe you could just share that really quickly because I thought that was terrific. So what was your, what was your pitch? So the first problem in door-to-door -door sales is no one wants to talk to you. Although these were somewhat kinder and gentler times. This was the early 1970s. We're a little more open-minded to talk to people than we are today. Um, so you would knock on a door, and, and um, the first words out of your mouth was you were just doing a brief survey of people's entertainment habits and how often did they go to the movie and how often did they eat out. For example, when's the last time did you eat out? And the next thing you know, they're answering your survey for you without actually ever agreeing to it. Right. 
And then by the end of the survey, you'd say, well, based on your responses, you'd be a perfect uh, person to learn more about Club America. And you'd start wiping your feet on their doormat. <laughs> and then the next thing they said, come in. You didn't even ask. So the, the, the author of this program actually was a master of, of, uh, of techniques. Unfortunately, uh, his character didn't match his genius in techniques. So the, the, the fly-by-night company was a good in many ways to describe this travel company. Yeah. So you said your experience taught you that you were good at sales. And I have to wonder, did you enjoy the job because you were good at it or because there was something inherently thrilling about sales that made you want to pursue it more? So my, I should say my first job out of Grinnell was driving a meat truck in New York. That was a temporary assignment I had. And uh, they were so impressed, they've only hired history majors. Uh, <laughs> since that point. So actually having a job where you could wear a tie, you didn't get blood on you all day long, you didn't have to lug Heinz of beef around, there's a certain appeal to that. Yeah, um, I can see that. <laughs> but they had about 19 different branches. And um, um, the first month I was there, I sold more than anyone in the entire 19 branches. So they invited me to Texas for this ceremony, and they gave me a Lincoln Continental to drive around, and I thought, this seems better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I had, a, uh, I had a, a scholarship, a Watson Foundation grant to go make films in, in the UK. So at the time, they had this thing called the draft, so I had to wait for my draft st status to be resolved, et cetera. So when that was resolved, I went to went to the UK and made films and discovered very quickly there were a lot of people more talented than I was making films and they were all starving. Yeah. And on the other hand, that I'd at least become convinced that sales was a reasonable career option for me. Right. I just wanted to work for a much more respectable company and that's what yeah. directed me towards medical devices. So you, I, I, I was kind of trying to drill in here because you're something of an expert in behavioral interviewing and, and you employed it, I've employed it liberally in your work, and, and you're an author, and you wrote a book with Gallup in the early 2000s called Discover Your Sales Strength. I'm gonna ask you to tell me how you ended up an author, but I, I also want to, to kind of harken back to if you could use your own expertise on yourself as a salesperson, and why you were drawn to that. What in your character was drawn to the idea of the challenge of selling? So uh, in all honesty, I, I, I wasn't drawn to it. It was economic necessity. I, I mentioned they were really basically the only one that would give me a job, not realizing at the time they would give a job to anyone who walked <laughs> in the door, paid you a $30 bond fee, and yeah. you were hired. Um, <laughs> yeah, but what, I mean, what, made it, what made you good at it? What in your behavioral DNA made you good at it? So I, it was not obvious to me at the time, mm -hmm. but subsequently through a lot of uh, uh, research that I had a chance to look at as, as I was writing the book, there are two fundamental characteristics that, that and there's more, more to it than this, there's a lot of nuances, but the best salespeople in the world are in the top 10% of motivation. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and those of you that are good at math, I'm a history major, I'm not that good at math, but my conclusion is that there's 90% of the people who aren't in the top 10%. Yeah. <laughs> and um, 
the other thing is the willingness to ask people to do things. And realistically, a lot of people are just intimidated by asking people to do things. And, and they're uncomfortable. They're awkward doing it. It's, it's difficult uh, for them. And again, similarly, we found that, that if you're in the top 10% of your willingness to ask people to do things, those two things combine, that drive to get something done, that motivation, and the willingness to do the hardest part of sales, which is just ask people to do things. Right. Um, um, uh, uh, became apparent to me uh, in that first door-to-door -door, um, um, sales occasion. We had three steps we had to go through after we sat down with the victim, a customer. <laughs> um, and and the, the structure of this was you presented a little bit of information about the club and, and, and said, I have three favors to ask you. One is, if I say anything and you don't think it's true, please stop me. Um, the second thing, if you have any questions, please go ahead and ask me. And the third thing is, is you may like this, you may not. not. Either way, it's, you're, you're the only one who can decide that. But at the end of the evening, I would like you to tell me yes or no if you'd like to join the club. Hmm. And oddly, if you did that, your chances of getting them to say yes or no rather than let me think about it, let me ask my grandmother, um, were much, much higher. And later on, I became a branch manager for them. And, and I would take people out and, and watch them. And so many people could not get those three questions out on the table. And so they ran into that constant obstacle. They, they couldn't close. They couldn't, they, couldn't, they, they couldn't frame things in a way that, that, that helped the customer come to a decision-making process. Now, this was sort of unknown to me at the time. But when, you looked at, when I looked at what I learned from, from doing the research behind the book and then looked back, those were the two most obvious things. So where do you where in your experience did they usually hiccup? Was it in, in they saying yes or no, or was it uh, just getting those three questions out? They just wouldn't ask it, huh. no matter how. And this is this is the useless part about training, in many cases. Right. <laughs> We're asking people to do things they can't do, right. and then we wonder why they don't do it, yeah. and they're just they're so uncomfortable particularly about asking things that, that, that they couldn't bring themselves to do it. So they'd sit there. And the interesting thing is they didn't mind if they spent three hours with one customer who was going to say no. They were in a warm place. They didn't have to go out and, and knock on another door. Whereas if the person said no to that right away, you were off, you were out, you're not knocking on the next door, take the next 10 people who are going to say, slam the door in your face and, right. and then find another prospect. So this, this book, Discover Your Sales Strength, how did you end up writing this with the Gallup organization? So you should never ask an author a long question like that, because we have oh, long okay. answers. <laughs> I, but, but a few years, skip forward a few years, I'm now the vice president of sales for a company called Davol, which eventually was acquired by C.R. Bard. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we had about a 100-person sales uh, force. And um, one of my roles in that responsibility was to finally interview um, people that we're going to hire as a sales rep. How many of you in the audience here are involved in interviewing people at some stage? And how many of you have ever made a bad hire? So that was my experience. <laughs> and and um, I remembered one of the interviews I had taken for Mutual of Omaha stuck out in my mind. So I backtracked to find out who developed this interview. And it was a psychologist in Nebraska named Don Clifton. He was running a company at the time called SRI selection research. 
and eventually he would buy Gallup. That's how the connection began with Gallup. But, so he designed a series of interviews for us to use to hire medical device people. And a couple really interesting things happened. But number one, it improved the caliber of our sales force faster than anything that, that I've seen. And medical devices, you have a big investment in someone. It takes a year to figure out if they can even get in to see somebody. So you've spent a lot of money by the time you're able to evaluate their performance. And hiring A candidates instead of B and C candidates made an enormous difference. And the interesting thing was their appearance looked alike, their education looked alike. In many cases, their background in terms of former sales jobs looked alike. The big difference were those, those uh, personality characteristics that really were the, the heart of defining uh, how well they were going to do. So after 25 years with Bard, I retired, and the next day, Don calls me up, and I kept in contact with him. We used his stuff the whole time I was there. And he said, we've collected 30 years of data. We'd like you to write a book uh, for us uh, on, on, uh, on that. They had just put a book out called Discover Your Strengths by Marcus Buckingham. Sure, yeah. And they wanted to calibrate it much more towards sales, which is really where most of their data that they had collected to that time came right. from. So he, he said, uh, I said, Don, you realize I've never written a book. He said, oh, you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Why did he think you could do it? Something in your so, behavioral. Uh, so he had observed me give a lot of talks, mm -hmm. and he thought I could present information in a compelling way that made the point and didn't bore people. Right. And, and uh, uh, that's a little bit harder to do in written work than it is in, on, uh, in a live performance. But yeah. I understand. Yeah, um, a couple things I read in your in your book, and I, re I read some chapters that they have online. You wrote that the or you and your co-author wrote that the data does not suggest that companies data suggests that companies should not strive for the highest customer satisfaction rating it can get. That the customer is not always right. So can you help uh, me understand that one a little bit? Yeah. So this is a this was a lot a of customers of, in here. So I want this was a bit of a side research we had done, and uh, we noticed that, that not only did the top 25% sell more than the middle and a lot more than the bottom folks, but they were much better at developing what I'm going to describe as customer advocates. And customer advocates are those people that are going to go tell their friend or neighbor or colleague, they're the doctor that will go in and fight with the value committee about why they have to have that product. And um, almost all of that was confined within, the, within that top 25% of the sales group. They were the ones who were really actually developing these advocates. It's why they did better year after year. They had their customers helping them. And we thought this was odd because when we tried to put metrics around customer satisfaction, which is what we sort of were thinking about at first, it didn't make much of a difference. A, most good companies have about an 80% customer satisfaction level. Pepsi has it. Coke has it. Unless you're doing really bad, that's what most of us are going to have. Uh, but it wasn't predictive. If your customer satisfaction scores went up, your business scores didn't go up. And one of the most surprising things we found out was is that a satisfied customer is just as likely to leave as a dissatisfied customer. And that doesn't make sense. No. But you have dissatisfied people that love to complain, and so they're going to hang on to you forever. <laughs> um, I, I, my mother was one of those uh, uh, folks. She, she had her hair cut the same place every year for 20 years, and every time she'd come home, that, I don't, she does such a horrible job after 20 years, I finally said, 
why do you keep going to her? She said, well, everybody else would do just as lousy of a job. And, <laughs> um, and so when we started measuring customer advocacy, and that is what percent of your customers would actually be that advocate, it's not 80%. It's 15% if you're really good, 20% if you're exceptional about it. So all the time and attention we do generating customer, customer uh, satisfaction scores provide little real insight in terms of what to do. And the, the other thing we learned was is that if you move the customer advocacy needle, if you go up from 18% to 21% of your customers are advocates, it's a big difference in, times, in terms of what those extra few advocates do. So that brought us around to the circle and said, we want to hire people who have the capability of creating collaborative, constructive relationships with people that will build that advocacy relationship. Okay. What is the phrase, I hate to lose, mean to you? So, um, the, the science behind most of this is having questions that um, get to a point around a person's characteristic. I noticed our, our, our prior speaker made the comment that he's still getting to know himself. Mm -hmm. But I would say during the course of your talk, he used a lot of words that said he had a pretty good handle on who he was, very focused, very concentrated. Uh, he had a, had a real understanding about that. The way these interviews and assessments work is they have to ask a pointed question in a way that's hard for some people to answer. So you might ask that question, I love to win. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't? However, only a few people are going to own up to the fact that I hate to lose. It has a negative attached to it. A subtle negative, but it has a negative attached to it. So the people that own up to that, you know, are probably at the top of that scale of competitiveness. Mm -hmm. And you know that a person who hates to lose will pour on the gas when they're in a close contest with somebody else. Right. They will bend over backwards to do more to try and win. On the other hand, if they don't think the contest is fair, they're not that driven by it. If they don't think they have a chance of winning, they may even withdraw from it. So that's, a, that's an example of what we call a, sort of a personality uh, tell. If a person has that characteristic, you can predict how they're going to act in a, diff in a different situation. So if you have two people that are like that in your sales team, and they're pretty equal, and you match them up together, mm -hmm. th they're going to both work really, really hard to try and, 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 and beat that person. But it's one of those motivational themes that not everybody has, but, but if you have it, it becomes really important to your manager to understand that about you. Right. So let's put this into real world practice in terms of how you've implemented it in your own businesses. Um, you said you implemented this at CR Bard, correct? Mm -hmm. and, and you told me recently um, this day you implemented this the first day you got to Teleflex. Yes. And, and one of the things that uh, you told me recently was that you noticed that when companies started hiring for talent, that diversity naturally followed. So there's several questions uh, or several points buried in there. So sure. I'll, I'll start with that, that um, last point. Uh, when I first went to work for Dayball, I went to the first sales meeting, and there were 100 other people that looked like me. 6'2 or taller, blue suit, same red tie. I still have the outfit. Yeah. Um, and uh, we had about 100 salespeople. One of them was a woman. Uh, and that was what medical device sales looked like at the time. 
And she was an interesting character. She smoked cigars, she drank whiskey by the shot, and she could curse better than any of us. Because that's what we thought women had to be to be in a sales culture. Once, as soon as we started hiring for talent, uh, within five years' time of doing that, our sales force was 50-50. That there's only a few A's out there, and when that's what you're interested in hiring, you don't care what they're, about, about a lot of other things about them. Mm -hmm. And so that was an interesting observation. I've seen that happen when we started hiring managers, when we, when, et cetera. So when you, or the lesson that I learned from that is when you hire for talent, diversity happens. Right. I didn't have a good explanation for it until 25 years later, and we were doing a study, and I was at SRG at this point in time, and I was doing a study for Novo Nordisk, and they, they wanted us to look at their best female performers and their best male performers. This was Novo Nord Nordisk in Europe. And um, much to our surprise, the best performers, whether they were male or female, looked pretty much the same regarding those personality characteristics. It was a relatively small base study, and so we then went back and went through our whole database. And um, when we looked at top performers, the same pattern emerged, that, that they looked very similar, uh, regardless of gender. And I'm not saying men and women aren't different, but I am saying that the characteristics that enable them to build constructive collaborations, to build trust with people, to think through things, and, and to willing to ask, those characteristics show up in equal frequency, regardless of gender, and you see them flourish at the top. So this whole idea that women are different and, 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 and aren't like their male counterparts has some truth to it, but not when it comes to actually leadership capability, leadership potential, management potential, all, all those kinds of things. And, and I think that was, to, to me, that was contrary to what you were hearing a lot in the popular press about about, about explaining some of the reasons maybe women don't do well, and it has nothing to do with their potential talent or capability. So obviously we're in an industry that some could argue has a pretty serious diversity problem in terms of male-female representation among the senior ranks. So I mean, when you, when you look at the medical device industry, do you feel, I mean, certainly it is the executive ranks of, or do not represent the ratio of male to female in this room, why? So um, I would tell you my experience, what, what, what happened my experience at BART is when we didn't have, we had one sales, female sales rep, so mm -hmm. not surprisingly we had no female sales managers. Mm -hmm. Until you started, started hiring female sales reps, you weren't going to promote them into management roles. Five years later we had, had our first female sales, rep, uh, sales managers, excuse me, and then five years after that our first senior leadership uh, so it, it does take a bit of a building time to happen because a lot of companies promote from within. But, but I think it, it, it has taken, it, so it takes a while. It doesn't happen overnight within, within a, 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 a company. But it does open up a lot of eyes to people that when you're looking for an A and it's outside and, and yeah. they're hard to find and you have one that's one gender versus the other, you, you're, you start to be willing to go outside your old ideas about who the, who the person was or who the requirement is for that, for that role. So, say so I think it is happening, yeah. slower than maybe we'd like to see, or I'd like to see, but I think it's happening. So how have you implemented it at Teleflex? Tell me what a 
candidate for a sales position or a sales leadership position or a leadership position? What is the process that they go through? How are they vetted? And, and uh, take us through that a little bit. So a little bit differently, depending on the role. Sales roles are very different. Selling pharmaceuticals is different than selling medical devices. Selling to doctors is actually different than selling to, 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 to nurses. So the way this starts is you look at the top 25% of any sales force they put them through an analysis called a Talent Profiler, which I'll call a sort of a strength finder on steroids. Um, and then they'll do the same thing for their C performers. And they're looking for the biggest area of statistical differences. Is focus or concentration really important in this role? If it is, it'll come across. Um, and, and I'll give you an example. They were doing a, they were doing a hiring program for a, a program manager for bariatric chambers. And 90% of their A performers said to this statement, uh, I excel at, at juggling uh, people uh, and processes to meet a deadline. 90% of them said that was exactly like them. None of their C performers said that was exactly like them. So you go through 124 statements like that, I hate to lose, et cetera. And pretty soon you see the pattern that develops for that sales role and what that A performer looks like. Mm -hmm. And then that's developed into an interview. When you start to move into manager roles and leadership roles, they're not so company specific or, or role specific. So a, a good sales manager is gonna be a good sales manager and could be in many in industries. Certainly a vice president of sales, um, uh, you're looking for more generic things. So there are sort of more off the shelf interviews that work for those positions. Right. So let's talk about the 75 question phone interview. Mm -hmm. Where does that fit in? So the, the, I would say, first of all, the interview is developed and then tested and validated. So they go back and somebody blind who doesn't know whether they're an A or C performer administers the interview and, tries to, and makes a determination what they are. Then companies use this um, very differently. When we first started using it, it would be the last thing we did before we hired them. Oh, okay. So they got through all the process and then we come back and say, that person you loved? They're a C. <laughs> um, this caused some resentment. <laughs> um, but we were willing to do it because we really wanted to stop managers from hiring Cs. And, and in all honesty, that's how they get into the company. Somebody hires them because they didn't think they were a C when they hired them. More recently, um, um, in fact, I was just having a conversation with some of my old colleagues at SRG. More recently, companies have shifted to using this very early on in the process. Yeah. And surprisingly, it's an economic benefit. They don't spend a lot of time flying people around, a lot of valuable management time interviewing them. So it tends to, it tends to crop up earlier in the process now to really help screen people. And in, in my experience, if you're hiring a sales engineer, most companies are pretty good at vetting the engineering part. Yeah. They're not so good at vetting uh, um, the, the selling part of it. So this, this takes a, narrows down the people they're gonna sp spend time with. And one of, the, one of the projects Don had me working on while I was with him was just looking at the general population. What percentage of the general population do you think has the characteristics that would enable them to succeed at sales on a consistent basis? Well, it's a long research question. What percentage of the population do you think would make great salespeople? Everybody's a salesperson? Well, I've got some disappointing news for you. <laughs> I saw someone say 5%, any different answer? 
You, you're a lot more knowledgeable than, I get answers like anybody who wants to be, which is sort of similar um, to 10% or 15. According to the research project I did at Gallup, it's about 3% of the population that are in the top 10% in motivation and also in the top 10% in asking. So that's where that kind of vortex me. Now, next question is, what percentage of the population is actually in B2B sales roles that we're, we're kind of talking about? What percentage of the population actually is employed doing that? 10, who's that answer? Wow, yeah, 10%. Again, history major, not good at math. But that roughly means that 70% of the people who are employed in sales roles do not belong there. Even as a history major, I thought I would like my competitors to hire as many of those people <laughs> as they possibly could, and I'm going to go after the yeah. I'm going to go after the three percent. So, so how, wait, how does how does the person who is completely not fit for the job make it through the interview process? Then the what manager likes them. Uh, most hiring managers. First of all, some interesting facts. Um, who hires the most people in your company? I will guarantee you, it's the manager who has the biggest turnover problem. You know why they have the biggest turnover problem? They're the worst sales manager. They're bringing more and more people into your company because they have all the vacancies. Um, and they're not, and I, I'm being a little bit sarcastic here, and I don't mean to be. But one reason is, is that they tend to hire C people. They tend to hire people who had the same experiences, went to the same school. They're looking for those factors that are, that, are, that, are, that are hardly predictive at all. But A managers make the same, make the same uh, uh, kind of mistakes at all because, it's, because it's hard for them to gauge where a person is on the motivational scale. Mm -hmm. Are they in the top 50%? Or are they in the top 70%? Or are they in the top, uh, the top uh, 3%? Yeah. The second thing is, is that managers quickly shift from the candidate evaluation mode to the recruitment mode. Oh, I like this person. They decide that three minutes after they're into the, into the interview. So they're pretty quickly done assessing this and they're trying to think, how do I get this person on board? And I would just say that if you're going to spend $150,000 on a device sales rep for the first 12 months you have them before you figure out if they're even good, maybe three minutes isn't enough to, uh, to come to that conclusion. Just a thought from a history yeah. major. <laughs> so, three minutes and then they decide that we can't lose this person? So, so is, that, again, is that because salespeople are very motivated to get to a yes and want to find agreement? Possibly. Okay. I, I don't know the, the answer to that, person? but I think, I think, our, I, I think at, at least, and I spent a lot of time uh, getting insights from Don as I was writing the book, I think his assessment was it's not just sales managers that do that. Many people yeah. like the resume, like the person who walked in the door, they're making that decision up pretty quickly. They hate recruiting and hiring new people anyway because they've got other stuff to do and this person looks pretty darn good and check the let's box. move on to the, yeah. to, to the next box. And usually their manager Unless, unless something really, really bad happens, uh, is going to agree with that. Do you think perhaps they they sort of wait too long, and or I don't know if it seems like. So they're afraid the candidate's going to get away. They might get another job offer. Yeah. They're going to have to start from scratch. Um, I'll, I'll tell you one story, and uh, and and as I was interviewing for 
Daval, I was also interviewing with the division of Johnson Johnson called Ethicon, and this is 1973. There's, there's no better healthcare device company you can work for than Ethicon. And I hit it off with the manager. Okay, door-to-door -door sales experience. We'll see if we can get by with that. He was a little nervous about my background, but passed me along to the regional manager, who was the next level up, who's going to have to sign off on me. I'm living in Atlanta at the time, and, and uh, the guy impresses me. He said, wear your best suit because you, you have to look J&J. &J. And he said, do not be late. If you're a minute late, you're in trouble. So this is Atlanta. It's November. I'm going for this interview. It's kind of dark late in the morning in Atlanta in November because they've changed times. And, and I get up, and I get dressed halfway in the dark, and I'm out the door. And as I'm getting to the Atlanta airport, um, I notice I have one uh, black sock on and one dark blue sock, which is noticeable. <laughs> so I go in, and I'm now I'm nervous because I'm nervous. Yeah. And so I go in, and now the Atlanta airport is a mall. Yeah. You could buy anything at the Atlanta airport. Before they had a newsstand, so I go up to this newsstand lady, and I said, do you sell any socks? By? And she looks at me, she says, this is a newsstand. We don't sell socks. What's your problem? And I explained to her. She pulls out a pair of black pantyhose out of her purse and says, I'll sell you to this. And she says, just cut them off, put them over your socks, it'll solve the problem. I think, man, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> so I get into the crown room where I'm going to meet this gentleman for an interview. And I go up to the receptionist. I said, do you have a pair of scissors? She said, well, I can't find them. I don't know where they are. So now time is ticking. and. I go into the men's room, and I'm just going to have to put the entire pantyhose on. <laughs> All the stalls are filled. There are people in there reading newspapers, smoking. I don't know what they're doing, but they're all filled. So I got a decision to make. I can do this here and now. Or... So here I am, six foot four, taking my pants off. Wrestling in to get into a pair of black pantyhose, and if you've never done it, it's hard. <laughs> it's harder than it seems. So, so I get my pants back on, I get my shoes back on, I'm looking in the mirror. It's not perfect, but it's pretty darn good. And I have to tell you, at that moment, I was about as proud of myself. <laughs> as I had ever been. And so I go into the interview, open the door, and there's one of the guys who was in the men's room staring at me. <laughs> during the entire process. And he says to me, he said, I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> he said, but. I will never tell anyone what happened. <laughs> At that point, it dawned on me that maybe even the best companies aren't sure of what the things to really look for in the interview process uh, uh, ought to be. So, um. I kind of feel like we should end it at that one. <laughs> I feel really dumb asking you about Teleflex's uh, M&A strategy after that. It's uh, a good one. Yeah. <laughs> and I would just as soon keep it to ourselves. <laughs>
Well, that's a first. That, that is, that's the best story I've heard. And we've heard a lot of good ones here. <laughs> oh, man, he threw me off. Uh, I don't know where to go. I think let's just say thank you. <laughs> but, thank you. <laughs> no, no, no.